This is the Education Gadfly Show. Kind of like going, you know, from, uh, you know, from, uh, I don't know, from Satan to the Buddha. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming our special guest for this week, the original Education Gadfly, Checker Finn. Arf, arf. <laughs> what? That's, what flies, that's what flies say, isn't it? like a dog, but okay. <laughs> also joining us, my co-host, David Griffith. Buzz, buzz. Uh, that's more <laughs> like it. Uh, Checker is also the Distinguished Senior Fellow at the Fordham Institute and President Emeritus. So Once many, upon a time. So many titles. Mm. Ah, all right. And... Uh, another title that you have that we're going to talk about today is member of the Maryland State Board of Education and commissioner of the Kerwin Commission. Let's talk about it on the Ed Reform Update. All right, Checker. Well, uh, you have been serving on this commission for two long years. For two long years, the called the Kerwin Commission finally came out with what's called an interim report. 200 pages long yep. or something. Uh, interim because uh, it doesn't actually have details around the money. Right. Because it's a, a got, got a long wish list in there. But tell us first about the substance of this thing. You have been arguing uh, against me at times that, you know, I've been saying that education policy is dead for now. And you're always saying, no, it's not. In fact, the Kerwin Commission in Maryland is full of new ideas and how to improve our education and system. It is, and it is. The report is uh, terrific on, in policy terms. The policy shakeup, overhaul that it is, seeks to uh, make happen in Maryland K-12 and to some extent higher education uh, and to a considerable extent in the CTE world, which goes into uh, all kinds of other training institutions like apprenticeships and community colleges and things. Uh, the, the changes are very substantial. Um, they're also pricey. Uh, the year 10 total estimate for the additional uh, cost is uh, close to $4 billion. This is on top of about $14 billion that is now being spent on K-12 education in the state. So it's not trivial. Uh, in fact, it's expensive. In fact, I've just written a piece which says they didn't make some of the cost trade-offs that they could have in order to lower the price tag without hurting the recommendations. That is a lot of money. Okay. Now, what is it that you like so much about this? The, what are some of those recommendations? Because as you also have pointed out, there's basically nothing about school choice, uh, about improving Maryland's charter school law, which is the worst in the country. Uh, so it must not be on the school choice side that you're excited. That's correct. Um, individual statement that I wrote and incorporated in the report makes the choice point pretty pretty bluntly. Uh, but the other stuff is pretty good. The concept of getting uh, almost all young Marylanders to a state of college and career readiness by the end of 10th grade, certainly by the end of high school, and creating some really interesting pathways for them after they are college and career ready, including early college, including a heavy dose of AP and IB, including a dramatically overhauled CTE system that is really designed to produce industry credentials, not mm -hmm. just a few courses in CTE. So uh, this is important and it will echo reverberate up and down the K-12 system because we're talking about uh, um, the current target is 65% of all young Marylanders at that point by the end of 10th grade. Mm -hmm. Right now, we are only getting about 40% of them there by the end of 12th grade. Mm -hmm. So this is a very heavy lift that is contemplated. So it, I mean, it sounds similar to what some other states have done. Certainly other states have set goals for attainment, some, you know, college 
attainment goals or post-secondary attainment. Um, sounds a little bit like what you're doing with the 60% or is that, that's readiness. That's a readiness. That is goal. readiness to embark on one of these pathways. Okay. Now, keep in mind that Maryland has on the books already a law stating that 45% of high school graduates should be CTE kids. Yeah. 45% is a big number and that is a big change from the college for everybody uh, yeah. concept. I was going to say that that's the thing is that when you dig in, there's all this enthusiasm for career and technical ed- education. We share in that enthusiasm, but you dig in, you find out when you look for, you know, kids that are really spending a lot of their time in high school doing CTE, uh, it's not a very big number. And especially working on actual industry credentials, it's Correct. like, you know, two or three or four percent of the kids and right? it's two or three courses typically and right. then you're called a cte major and all you've done is take a right. few courses now that's more like what 20 percent of the kids that at least concentrate in cte but again right that's just a few courses that's basically saying they're going to use their electives for career and technical education but that doesn't isn't the kind of thing that we see in other countries around the world where they're really letting 16 and 17 year olds do serious workforce and workplace learning well with with help from mark tucker and the national center on education and the who were the lead consultants to the commission on this, yeah. uh, we really are trying on the commission to model it after leading countries in the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, to have something that ends up looking considerably more like uh, Switzerland or Singapore or Germany in terms of CTE and in terms of a changed ratio of who's expected to go to which kinds of colleges. Mm-hmm. It's a big change. David, what do you think? You've been studying a lot of this uh, CTE stuff. We have a big study coming out. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I defer to my betters, honestly, when it comes to this. I guess, I w- Checker, just tell me more about that. I mean, in other countries, do they think of, do they really still do this? First of all, I mean. They really do. They really do. And not everybody, but as nearby as a province of Ontario and Canada really does this. And, and what do they mean by like, well, they don't call it CTE, I assume. No, they call it whatever. Typically, they call it, uh, you know, work readiness or technical education or something like that. They have an almost seamless progression from high school into what are often called technical training institutes, mm-hmm. a kind of alternative form of tertiary education. Uh, but there's also quite a lot of um, on the job uh, parts in both the high school and the tertiary part. And and we always run aground on this problem of of the history of the old Voged, Votech, which was racist and classist. Uh, and we don't want to go back to that. Yeah, it seems that, like in other countries, what they do is they make sure that there are, some of these routes are really into professional white collar occupations and, that pay and, well, right? And, and have, Pay well and have high status. I mean, the status equalizing, the cultural shift that this entails, uh, which is to no longer have CTE be where you send the dumb kids mm-hmm. uh, or the poor kids or the minority kids. No, there's there's got to be an, a, a, a kind of cultural shift. And that's going to be hard because, you know, the teachers themselves in the schools went to colleges, regular academic colleges. And um, awful lot of parents think that's the only imaginable thing for their kid. And if their kid is encouraged to even consider um, something that looks more like a trade, uh, then it's something wrong with the kid or racist about the school it's a problem that's not my objection i mean do the kids in these other countries do they really know what they want i mean do we have any kind of data showing that you know high schoolers they can are they making the decisions i don't know who <laughs> okay. decides right. at age 16 yeah. in singapore right uh, i suspect given the nature of singapore that the government has something to do with it right yeah. okay fair enough i think it's probably less the case in ontario canada for example where i rather suspect quite a lot more dare i say choice is going on on the part of the kid 
I mean, this is why, you know, here we're, we're again, we're so, we, you're right, David, this is where we, we get uncomfortable. And the, even the career and technical education advocates here will say, well, it's not really to prepare them for the workplace. It's to, you know, we still want these kids going to college of some sort. So in that case, it doesn't really matter as much what field they pick in high school because the only, it's, it's just to give them these skills anyways. And so they pick healthcare, fine, but they can later change their mind and go into a different field if they want to. I mean, that seems to be sort of where we get squishy versus like, no, they're going to spend two years working in a hospital with the expectation that that's probably the, where they're going to work for decades. Let me just add, though, that it's not immutable. If you look at the crazy chart in, in, in Switzerland of how their system is organized, there are lots of sideways trajectories for kids that change their mind and want to either go to university or want to do something different. Mm-hmm. It is not immutable. I think yeah. that's an important point. So, Checker, a process question now. So, uh, you have this commission, mm-hmm. uh, has all these great recommendations that you like uh, and that represent good ideas from across the spectrum. I mean, we've had commissions like this, you know, too many. Many over the years. Too many. I've been and on a couple of them. Different. This one's and, different. Yeah. Right? And now what? I mean, is do you have any hope that this is going to get enacted into policy? We're going to see this change? Uh, I just just put a piece on our blog, which is entitled Kerwan and the Sacred Cows, uh, and uh, talks about the extent to which these recommendations will upset and indeed um, uh, anger uh, some of the state's many sacred cows, the state of Maryland's many Mm -hmm. sacred cows, adult interest groups that like it the way it is. Um, I'm not confident that the, between the legislature and the governor, that they can get this done, Mm -hmm. uh, or that they can agree with each other, or that they can resist the sacred cows. Or that the school districts, which in Monk, which in Maryland are these huge countywide systems and have a whole lot of authority, right, and and the setup in Maryland that they're going to do any of this. Stuff. Well, the single most controversial recommendation in the Kerwan recommendations is an o- a new oversight body to more or less force them to. Yeah. Needless to say. Good luck with that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Good luck with that. All right. Well, interesting stuff. I will concede that education policy is not quite dead yet. There's a a few, a a faint pulse. We still seem to be talking about something. Uh, We are talking about something. That's right. the heart is beating in Maryland. The uh-huh. brain is trying. Uh-huh. Uh, the muscles aren't so strong. Well, we'll see. You know, people seem to think uh, Governor Hogan's pretty impressive guy. Just got reelected in a in pretty much a landslide. Let's Maybe have another conversation about could, Hogan one day. He could use his political capital to actually get some things done. With his veto-proof majority of Democrats in, the, uh, uh, in, in both houses. Yes. All right. Okay. That's all the time we've got for Ed Reform Update. Thanks, Checker. Hope you come back sometime again soon. Invite me. It's now time for every. Everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So we were just talking to Checker about the Kerwin Commission in Maryland. You know, it makes it sound like Maryland may not be the lamest education policy state in the country anymore. Uh, (laughs) Really? I think Virginia's back in the lead. (laughs) (laughs) What a dubious honor. It's just horrendous. I know. We're just, uh, when is it ever going to change in my home state? 
Good question. Don't forget Oregon, guys. Uh, <laughs> Oops. Said that out loud. Okay. Sorry, Oregon. Did Sorry, say home. that out loud. You did. Okay. Yes. Well, Virginia, yes. Bad education policy and a terrible track record on school yearbooks, as it turns out, as well. It seems. Yeah. But, that, uh, yeah. Do we need to go there? Oof. I'm sorry. I can't help myself. <laughs> can't help myself. All right, Amber, what you got for us? Uh, we have a new study by Daniel Bowen and Brian Casita that presents results from a randomized control of an arts education initiative. We're always talking about, you know, we there's a uh, concern that arts education has gotten the shaft in the wake of test-based accountability. Um, so apparently Houston took that concern seriously and they um, partnered with over 30 arts-focused organizations to launch this initiative called Arts Access Initiative or AAI in 2013. And so it's really cool. They um, they have in the report, you know, it must have been over 30 organizations that partnered with HISD and the program involved working with each treatment school to bolster their arts programming such that arts experiences were provided at least once each school year in each arts discipline. So in theater, in dance, in music, and visual arts, they had an experience in each of those. And these things happen on campus by professional artists coming there and performing for the kids. Uh, another third was about through um, teaching artists residency. That, so they'd had an artist come there and, you know, be at the school that year and I guess teach art. Over a quarter were field trips and the remainder were programs outside of the regular uh, school day. Uh, treatment schools received an average of 10 experiences total. And schools that applied to the program agreed to match funds provided by the Houston Endowment Foundation. So it was a one-to-one match with those foundation funds. And the AAI schools ended up with an average annual budget of about $15 per student to facilitate and enhance these partnerships. But most schools had already initiated some of these partnerships prior to the program. So it was actually more, more money than that. All right. Okay. And, so that's and, and kind Amber, of what it looks like. And Amber, are we talking, I'm sorry, uh, elementary schools, middle schools? Elementary and middle school, but mostly elementary school. It was, I think okay. it was 80% or more of the samples elementary schools. Yep. Okay. All right. So they were oversubscribed. It was a voluntary program. It was oversubscribed. So Houston schools were randomly selected to participate in the program for the first two years while deferring participation for the other applicants. Okay. We've seen this type of design before mm-hmm. where everybody gets the goods, but you get a little late later than some schools. Uh, applicants were stratified by pairs prior to randomization. So they stratified them on the grade levels, student demographics, the resources of arts resources they already had, and school level achievement. Um, and then that, and then they randomized them based on that stratification. Uh, the sample included about 10,000 fourth through eighth graders in 42 schools, half treatment schools, half control. And then the analysts used student surveys, test scores, and other administrative data like attendance, enrollment, and discipline data to measure the impact of the program. Key findings, number one, increases in arts experiences significantly reduced the proportion of students receiving disciplinary infractions by huh. 3.6 percentage points. It improved writing achievement on the state tests by 0.13 of a standard deviation and increased students' compassion for others by 0.08 of a standard deviation. That's on that student survey, obviously. Hmm. Um, And these experiences were concentrated in elementary schools, like I said, because they were the bulk of the sample. And they also saw in those schools student school engagement where they responded to things like, you know, school work is enjoyable or my school has activities that I really enjoy doing. Um, They saw, you know, increases on all those types of questions. They also saw higher um, college aspirations for those kids in the elementary school versus the control. Um, 
And then importantly though, you know, probably what they didn't see is just as important as what they did see. There were no significant impacts on students' math, reading, or science achievement, attendance, or uh, like SCADs of these other survey outcomes that they were looking at. They had a bunch of other constructs they had uh, operationalized on the survey. So they spent a little bit of time talking about the writing bump, um, which I was glad they did. Um, mm-hmm. And they dug in and said that it was primarily driven by improvement in the open response expository essay. So it makes you wonder what might be going on there. So I thought maybe you might have a hypothesis. We talk about this a lot um, at Fordham about, you know, what are kids, what kind of experiences are they having outside the school day and what kind of, um, you know, content experiences are they having? So anyway, I mean, one hypothesis obviously is that maybe these kids, you know, obviously learn more about art um, and maybe that informed some of the topics they chose to write on this open-ended expository essay. I mean, who knows, but it was intriguing nonetheless. Very cool. Yeah, that is, look, I mean, first of all, shout out to these researchers and to the folks in Houston, both for doing the program, but also for making it uh, feasible to do a study like this. Uh, yeah. And it's encouraging. We haven't had a chance to look for these kinds of impacts, so it's nice to look and find outcomes that are positive. I mean, tell me again, though, Amber and, and David, uh, I mean, it's a big sample size. So are these results pretty in you know are, it, we, are it, well, we talking about little tiny differences or are we talking about yeah i'm not sure what a point i don't know the, the bit about the compassion uh made me think of dead poet society what was it like <laughs> point, it was point eight standard deviations or point zero eight yeah point oh eight yes 0.08. 0.08. yeah yeah I don't know. That's a, that's probably a lot of compassion. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's, not, it's not like going, you know, from, uh, you know, from, uh, I don't know, from Satan to the Buddha, but uh, it's, uh, you yeah. know, somewhere no, in between. Listen, I, th- I think it's all good. I mean, I, I think the main thing I would say is, I mean, it sounds like the it's a strong research design, plenty of plenty of kids in it, and and all these impacts are good. Yeah. Um, it's it. I think the main thing that's, that, that's worth saying is it's one of those um, one of those studies where there's so much going on in terms of the actual intervention mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, you know it's it's kind of like how some people sometimes critique pre-K, right? And it's like, well, what is it really? You know, is it mm-hmm. is it is it really pre-K or is it like the healthcare or the contact with parents or this this just strikes me as a a complex intervention, um, and I, if I wanted to to take it and do it somewhere else, mm-hmm. right? I'm not a thousand percent sure where I would start. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, for me, I thought it was a pretty high dosage of the intervention. Like sometimes, I mean, if you guys remember this Crystal Bridges evaluation that Jay and some others, I think, um, I actually think Daniel was involved on that one too. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty, you know, small intervention, as you were, as you recall. I think it was just like one field trip, right, to yeah. this, um, to this museum, and they found, you know, some impact. And so I was struck by, you know, this is a pretty. I mean, as interventions go, because sometimes we see some pretty light interventions, um, but having ten. Ex- experiences, you know, a, a year, I'm guessing that's a year and mm-hmm. doesn't, it doesn't even uh, dawn on me. It might be over the two years, but anyway, but that's still a lot. Um, I think for kids to have, um, you know, expo- exposure to art. So I would say that, you know, if we think that these are, you know, reasonable impact um, sizes, and, and I don't think they're, I don't think I'm not turned away by the size of these things that, um, you know, that, that that takes quite a bit of intervention, I think, to move the needle. Um at least, at least where I'm sitting, you know, I mean, and they, yep. they've talked about, you know, bringing in a teacher as a, as a full-time teacher and, um, you know, teaching the kids that's, that's, you know, that costs some money, right? I'm assuming that's a new hire. Um, and to have that person on staff is kind of a big deal in my mind. 
was did you get a sense, Amber? Was there a particular element of the program that the researchers just felt was the most important? Yeah, they they didn't they didn't say that. I mean, they just they categorized them. You know, one third is this, one third were these teacher, mm-hmm. a quarter of the field trips. I mean, I think we think a lot about you know field trips, and um, you know, twenty five percent of of these experiences being field trips. I mean, you know, that's that's not chump change either. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think actually taking these kids instead of just bringing someone to the school, actually giving them the experience of going to a museum or whatnot is uh, is probably more powerful, right, than some of these in school things. So, um, but no, they didn't they didn't really tear it, break it down and try to figure out what was driving the impact. Well, let, let me also make my testing hawk point, which is, look, the good news that there were not trade-offs here, that right. you can add this arts programming, meaning spend money on it, spend time on it, and you don't see any downsides in terms of student achievement in the traditional subjects. So Great point, Mike. If there were schools out there all these years that are saying that we're reducing our time spent on arts education because of the pressure from No Child Left Behind and testing, uh, it's just a bad strategy. It uh, doesn't work. It's not necessary. So there. <laughs> I'm glad we settled that. You can have your test in art too. You can have your art, right, and your test too, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we did settle it, David. That's the yeah. end. That's the end of the debate. That's, That's the nothing end. Nothing more to be said. No more anti-testing backlash, people. Right. All right. Great stuff. Uh, super, super cool stuff. Thank you, Amber. And yes, way to go, researcher. That's right. All right. Well, that is all the time that we've got. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute.